Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review, the show about the musicians we're obsessed with and the albums you need to know right now. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief, and here with me is our reviews editor, Jeremy Larson. Pooja, hello. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Pooja. (laughs) So we're here to talk about the year in music. It was a huge year for some of our biggest stars, but it also kind of felt like indie music is what really carried us through. We'll get into all of it, the good, the bad, some of the big surprises, and a few things that we really hope to forget. Jeremy, can you sum up 2022 in one sentence? No, I cannot. But my good friend, Father John Misty, a.k.a. Josh Tillman, can. And he said, and now things keep getting worse while staying so eerily the same. (laughs) Well, your friend, my foe. Glad we got that one out of the way early. Oh, we'll come back to it. I'm excited. Okay, well, we're going to be joined by Features Editor Ryan Domble to take a look back at the year in music, and we're also going to hear from some Pitchfork staff on their personal favorites of the year. Hey, I'm Kat Zhang. I'm the associate editor at Pitchfork. And one of my favorite pop albums of this year is Grace Ives' Janky Star. I love how the album has a lot of the pleasure of a traditional pop song. She sings in such a sumptuous way. The melodies are really catchy. But at the same time, I really like how it doesn't seem that expensive or overproduced. It's, it's quite scrappy and it has the delight almost of wearing a charm bracelet and letting all the, the beads clink together. Walk to the corner store, pulling out a hundred more. Get the overdraft. I work at the flower shop, cleaning out an empty pot. But my hours back. You know, now there are a lot of songwriters who want to seem messy and relatable, but there's something really artificial in their attempt at earnestness, or there's a really somber tone to the whole thing. And I like how Janky Star, you know, is honest about, you know, all the little escapades that Grace Ives gets up to, but it doesn't try so hard to make any sweeping generational statements. It's more granular in its portraits of her life. It ends up being more relatable to me, where she's just like, you know, chaotic and unwound uh, and still trying to figure herself out. Okay, I'm here with Jeremy Larson and Ryan Domble. Hey guys, are you ready for this? Yes, very excited, very excited for the year. (laughs) (laughs) That is 2022. For it to be over. We are on. Here we go. (laughs) The ball has been tipped. Let's do it. 
So let's start with our review of the year in music with the big leagues. The weekend at the very beginning of the year, Rosalia, Kendrick, Drake. I think we all know by now that Beyonce was my favorite, but would love to hear, Domble, what was some of your biggest swings that also really hit? Yeah, so I really loved The weekend's album, Don FM. It's probably my favorite album by him because I think it is really, you know, personally, I like his more pop side. I wasn't huge into his kind of shadowy R&B scumbag era. Um, wow. Wait, the, the first, the mixtape era? <laughs> yeah. Best era. Yeah, I wasn't as big into that. I know a lot of people swear by those records, but I think he really became... Most interesting when he really took off and started, you know, poisoning the pop world with his like pretty <laughs> fucked up ideas as opposed to just like embodying poison. Um, wow, wow, wow. So, anyway, the idea that I'm a motherfucking star boy. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so, I really enjoyed this record because it is like pure pop, maybe his most pure pop album, but at the same time, you know, he's singing about, you know, all the not nice things that he usually sings about, like autoerotic asphyxiation and, yeah, things that are <laughs> you wouldn't hear every day maybe on the top 40 radio. And also, let's not forget that he got Jim Carrey to, like, narrate this album, which is just a bizarre Huge choice. Gift. Huge uh, gift. Yeah, it's just a bizarre choice and actually kind of works in a weird way you are now listening to 103.5 don fm you've been in the dark for way too long it's time to walk into the light and accept your fate with open arms scared don't worry we'll be there any other big faves big hits rosalia who is a spanish pop star she kind of became really big this year i think she came into the year being you know, a lot of people wanted her to be a superstar. And she put out her album, Moto Mami, which really turned her into one. Um, you know, it, it seemed like this best case scenario of everyone's mm -hmm. rooting for this person. And they really delivered. But at the same time, like, this is a beautiful pop album. It puts her in the ring of, like, the biggest names in pop. But while also she didn't lose, like, an ounce of her coolness or originality, yeah. uh, you know, considering her last album was kind of a modern take on flamenco music, not exactly what you would think of as someone who's going to be the next huge star. So the fact that she really became one is heartening. And I just really enjoyed watching all of the stuff that she did around this album. Is it fair to say that some of the best pop music, when we talk about Rosalia, which it did feel like experimental pop, like flamenco influences with Dembo that is low key, with like weird bassline, with like weird free jazz, <laughs> um, all in the same album. And then to talk about OPN on the weekend, and we've previously talked about Beyonce and her experimentalist production tendencies. Like, is that what we needed? Hmm. That's what we needed. You know, not to be too bold, but I think that at Pitchfork, one of our general tenets of criticism is, yeah, like we really like it when 
a big star takes a big swing and just doesn't do what everyone expects them to do. That's always exciting and it's risky. It's part of why it's exciting. Doesn't always hit, but when it does, like, you know, that often gets the biggest reaction from me, you know, of almost anything like in the music world. I would argue that Harry and Taylor both thought that they were being innovative and experimental. That's sad. That's sad for them. (laughs) I think Harry always thinks that. But what would you say are the biggest disappointments of the year or the, the big hits that were just huge flops? Here's what I'll say. And this is coming from a place of a lot of love for this artist, which is that I thought Mitski's album, Laurel Hell, um, really didn't hit for me at all. For for much of the same reasons that we've been talking about is that like Mitski used the same producer that she's been using on their last three albums. The sound palette of the album is very middle of the road 80s. And I, I find that when you combine that palette with her songwriting, nothing really pops out of it, you know? And like some people like to describe Mitski as like sad girl pop, but I think she's like dissatisfied. I think she's withering. And there's a kind of intellect (laughs) to what she does that really draws me in. And that's what has always drawn me into her music. When this album came out, I went back and listened to one of the greatest pop songs ever written. That's Till Tuesday's Voices Carry. And I listened to and heard it that in the same palette that Mitski was using on Laurel Hell. And I'm like, there's so much happening and there's so much light and exuberance and fun happening on Voices Carry. And all of that is so muted and neutered on Laurel Hell. Neutered? Yeah, yeah, oh, 100%. I think it's overproduced. I think it's too glossy. This album just sort of sits in the middle ground between becoming a pop star and being uh, the indie flavor that she was in the beginning of her career. Um, I disagree with you on Mitski. So, but you know that our biggest tension of the year is Mitski's Laurel Hell. It's got a couple of great pop songs on it, and, that, yeah, and that's no, fine. I, I don't, I'm not saying like it's a flop. I don't. Want, I like. I am I am trying to thread the needle of being like I love this artist so much. We gave much, it a seven point eight, and this is not what <laughs> we clear. what I wanted from 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 this. And it's like and that's one of the tenets of criticism is that like I can't really hate on it for what it is because I think she sought out to do something and I just didn't like it. So it's it's unfair to, for me to be like I wish this record would have sounded different because that's not what she wanted to do. But you know, coming just from like an honest listener of this, like it's not one that I'll be going back to a ton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think disappointment is relative. You know, it just it doesn't. An album doesn't have to be a complete disaster to be a disappointment. You know, oftentimes it's those middle of the road albums by your favorite artists that end up being the most disappointing, just because you expect greatness. They throw up something that's pretty mid, and that's that can hurt your soul. Much more deeper than just sort of something that is a flop or a huge swing and a miss. Right. You know, like. In that spirit, I wanted to bring up Post Malone. Uh, <laughs> Post yes. Malone's 12 Are you carat- disappointed or was it a flop? <laughs> so he put out an album called 12 Carat Toothache this year. And I was disappointed <laughs> by uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Let me preface this by saying, for me, like his album Beer Bongs and Bentleys from 2018, the first half of that album stacks up with any 
first half of any pop album in, in the last decade to me. It's flawless. And, you know, since then, he's kind of, I remember during the pandemic, he did this pandemic performance where he did a bunch of Nirvana covers. That was awesome. Yes. And yeah, there's all this extracurricular <laughs> stuff about, you know, how he just seems like a genuinely cool guy. And then, yeah, like this album is so stuck in between trying to, you know, live up to his past like pop successes and then trying to also do something pretty strange um, or a little bit further than that or just more in left field. And it just gets mm. stuck like in between. But there is a couple tracks that suggest a way forward that I wanted to, to highlight <laughs> if, if Post is listening right now. Please, please. Um, there's this Tell one them called, what you're proud of. <laughs> there's this one called Euthanasia, which first off, it's a fucking Post Malone song called Euthanasia. Like that's automatically incredible. It is this like dreamy kind of ballad. And I just want to highlight the first few lines of this song. Amazing. No, amazing. Yeah. Number one. And then I spit another tooth in the trash can. I gave up on keeping me intact. Like, what? Like, that's good. It's so good. It's so that's like good. Bo- that's like body horror pop. Yes. I like it. Yes. Like, just great images. The idea of spitting a tooth into a trash can. So cool. Like, so cool. Yes. And, and you know, it's a, it's a pretty it. sad song uh, uh-huh. as well. So that's what would be great. Um, for him to to chase more and I, I I do think that taking a sip from the ash can and spitting a tooth into the trash can is like so aligned with indie sleaze that like it's all coming mm. together slowly but surely. Mm. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Let's talk about some stuff that we heard all the time. It was everywhere. It was omnipresent, and we wish to never think of it again. Just to get it out of the way, so that we don't have to think about it again. I'll start. (laughs) (laughs) The two boys, Harry Styles and Jack Harlow, are neck and neck for me. Mm. I do not understand. There's actually there's nothing that makes me angrier than the existence of Jack Harlow. Wow, you you like you grabbed your hair and like (laughs) almost pulled it out as you said it. (laughs) Why why is it? Why does he make you so angry? Okay, this is related to my feeling that we've just lost any sort of relatable, new, exciting celebrity pop icon to grab onto. And so the industry decided that Jack Harlow would be the new face of rap and Mm. has created a monster. (laughs) And they decided this based on his collab with Lil Nas X, Industry Baby, last year, which was very big, largely due to the charm and the enduring appeal of Lil Nas X, right? And the way that Lil Nas X has navigated being a newly revered pop star, right? Very bold about his identity. He kind of is a huge, fun troll, very good at being online and Jack Harlow kind of jumped on there and then stayed (laughs) and stayed because other idiots like Drake co-signed him. He's a pop stowaway. But let's talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about this freaking song first class, which everyone has heard, Mm. which is just 
a Fergie song. It's just the hook of a Fergie song. I've been a throw up the sex in a Gosh, okay. (laughs) He's literally not (laughs) doing anything on that song. I was so hoping that he was going to make some really clever sort of wordplay out of glamorous. No. And he like gives up like halfway through. Like it's it's awful. It's so terrible. It's truly like I thought there would be a crostic poem. Me too. Out of the word glamorous. Like I thought there would be (laughs) something. An an acrostic poem. (laughs) Um, But truly he could not have tried less. Yeah. And I think the thing that is so maddening about him, have you seen the photo of him at I think it's either Preakness or the Kentucky Derby, where he has white sneakers on, and there are two security guards carrying him like a baby, their, like 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 a child <laughs> over a patch of mud, and that is what the music industry and other bad rappers have done to Jack Harlow. Wow. They've carried him like a baby <laughs> over a patch of mud. <laughs> To headliner spot at Coachella 2023. You know, it's astounding how someone could fail upwards so quickly. We don't need to remind everybody that he's white, right? Like that, like, <laughs> like that is a huge, huge reason why he has glommed on to the pop star reign. Because like, you know, since Eminem, since Vanilla Ice, since <laughs> since Elvis, like that's how these things happen. Wait, they get- wait, <laughs> sorry. Can I can I interrupt for one second? Please. Um, so I went to look for our review of the Jack Harlow album, which was written by Matt Strauss, and we gave it a 2.9. That was gracious move on our end. Um, <laughs> but I went to look for it and I Googled Jack Harlow. And let me tell you, you know how Google serves you the people also ask? Mm-hmm. Here are the first people also ask questions on Google. Why is Jack Harlow so popular? What is Jack Harlow's ethnicity? What is Jack Harlow famous for? <laughs> wow. Well, I have all the same questions. <laughs> so I do feel like everyone has the same questions that we do about him. And yet he is somehow everywhere. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, one thing with Jack Harlow, though, you know, First Class was obviously a huge hit, but I think it's pretty telling he hasn't been able to follow it up at all uh, the, re- right. the whole rest of the year. So I think generally that album was an L, uh, you know, not just from us, but from, you know, the yeah, world. Like, really. Yeah. So, so the, you know, hopefully that was a humbling experience uh, <laughs> for Mr. But he Harlow. he was on the cover of Rolling Stone. He was on, like... Yeah, it's a very Emperor's New Clothes situation. Yeah. So there's still so much to talk about, and we'll do that right after a break. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. 
So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up? My name is Alphonse Pierre. I'm a staff writer at Pitchfork. And one of my favorite albums of the year is this rap album by a Tallahassee rapper named Real Boston Richie. It's called Public Housing, and it's his debut mixtape. But the thing is that the version of the mixtape that happens to be my favorite isn't the official version. It's a version called the DJ Frisco Fast remix version. And it's a very particular sped up sound on already released rap songs. It's kind of music that if you play it over and over, it almost has like this hypnotic feel. And what DJ Frisco does is that his sped up versions do a good job of keeping the like regional draws of the rappers, which is like so much of the fun of listening to rappers is hearing where they're from through their voices. And I think this version keeps that while amping it up. We're back. Jeremy and Dumble, are there any artists or songs or albums that you would be thrilled to never hear again? It hasn't been out for that long, so I don't have this allergy to it that I, that I would ha- have this been out for a really long time. But I, I would like to take a minute to just push Antihero off of a small cliff. I think that song is way overhyped and overtorqued. I think it is music for children. Um, wow. I think it's performative <laughs> and untruthful. I think the <laughs> emotional <laughs> locus of the song. <laughs> let me finish. I let me finish. I think the emotional <laughs> locus of the song, which is fine. I think it's okay. It's just for kids, and kids drive music. But I got to be honest. I'm I'm 38 years old. I'm generally attuned to music about self-loathing and about music about self-hatred. I would say like I'm primed in that kind of thing. So I would just like to say that this song does not belong in that in this canon at all. And and I and I think it's uh, pretty bad. Well, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Yeah, no, great, great. I, again, great. And I'm for not genes. a child. It's it's wonderful. I think I think it I think it really connects with with the youth out there. As a, as someone who also uh, fancies himself an expert on the self-loathing catalog, think of it this way, though. I really like Antihero, actually. And hmm. think of it as a gateway drug for the, you know, the self-loathing that we know and love. For someone like Father John Misty, like for, you know, every Ew. indie singer-songwriter <laughs> in history. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's kind of how I think of it. It is performative, but it's also a Taylor Swift song. So I don't know if that's a critique necessarily, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's ridiculous and definitely infectious in a mildly annoying way, but not as annoying 
perhaps as Harry Styles as <laughs> as it was, which is probably the song that I would never want to hear again. I just, oh God, I just wish he were better. I just wish he were better. Like, I, yeah. I think he seems like a perfectly, char- I mean, he's incredibly charming. He's, yeah, he's got to be top charming. three charming people on earth right now. I just wish his, his songs were better. I wish the writing was better. I wish the music wasn't just copying and pasting like songs from the 80s. And this really came to a head to me when we were doing our best music of the 90s package shameless plug on that and uh you know i was listening to george michael's song freedom from 1990 a classic Mm -hmm. in pop history and you know that song was really him coming out of boy bandom like coming into his own as a solo star it's uh, also like smart funny a banger and just kind of you know self-analytical in just an, an amazing way that's what I want. Like, that's the kind of attitude I want from Harry just to acknowledge Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And he just doesn't like, it's kind of mind boggling. Like, you know, maybe it'll be the next one, but I feel like I've been saying that about him for years now. I think that the thing is about Harry is that we want him to be great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I do think of the way he releases albums now and kind of akin to the way that celebrities release skincare lines. Like Mm -hmm. it's not his main project, it's something that he does on the side. <laughs> um, and, you know, even like opening that project at Harry's house with, wasn't he on the cover of Better Homes and Gardens? Yeah. Like, wasn't that his big first story to talk about the release of this album? Well, I could tell you after seeing Don't Worry Darling, he should really stick to music. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he, he's got a long way to go before he uh, is a star of stage and screen. Anyway, so. I'm going to move past Harry. I do feel like we're getting at the idea of pop stardom is so different in 2022. Like, it is about celebrity. It is about not having access to these stars. It also, to me, feels like we don't have a rising class as much as we used to. Like in 2010, I felt like we had Frank Ocean and Lana Del Rey and Kendrick and Drake and Beyonce. And like all these people didn't feel like they were like old <laughs> yet. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like we've been clinging to these artists who were extremely exciting 10 to 15 years ago and we're putting all of our hopes and dreams on them <laughs> now and they're failing us. Oh, God. So let's talk about, you know, outside of the arena, what were the kind of pop albums or the music that you hope will rise past 2022? Well, it's funny you say this because I was thinking about Frank Ocean and Rihanna, two people who I keep a tiny little notepad on my calendar of like Frank Ocean album, TK, like Rihanna Mm -hmm. album, TK. This like it may happen. It may not happen. But like the former is selling cock rings and the latter is inviting Johnny Depp to fashion shows. So I don't really know like who has the commitment to the pop star ideal anymore who who wants to put music as the first thing they're going to do for the rest of their life you know mm. and i don't think 
the music industry can support something like that anymore. I think you have to be like Lady Gaga and basically just do acting and and like Harry Styles, like like you have to do acting. I think unless you're Beyonce, I can't think of anybody else who can just do music and be a pop star. Let's say making pop music, because none of those artists were pop stars, right? Frank was definitely not a pop star. Lana, who I now think of as maybe not a pop star, but adjacent to that, like she was not a pop star. To me, I mean more like experimental artists and pop music making artists that have the ability to rise up or like create a cult of fandom around them. Mm, okay. In a, in a great way in, because of their music, you know? Yeah, I've got a couple. I really re- loved this album by the band Muna. It's a self-titled album that is very much a pop album. They are a band who was previously on a major label and then they were dropped. They put out a couple so-so albums and then they signed with Phoebe Bridgers label Satisfactory and put out their debut for that label, which is the self-titled record. Mm. It's really amazing, very fun, lyrically kind of a step up from your just typical pop record. They're extremely exciting to me. I saw them live this year and just a really fun live show. With the Phoebe cameo? Yeah, Phoebe was there Mm -hmm. and they're a queer band and they have a lot of very excited queer fans as well. And it's just really cool to see everyone just like so excited to be represented by a band like this. And, you know, to me, their music really reminds me of pure Katy Perry, like early-ish, like teenage Mm -hmm. dream Katy Perry, but, you know, through this queer lens. That's a band I think, you know, there's a realm where they're headlining Madison Square Garden at some point. Mm-hmm. And another one on kind of a, a flip side is this artist Dijon, who put an album out actually last year. It was at the end of last year and it, people were a little bit slow to get like hip to it. It's called Absolutely. It's fantastic. He's more kind of on the following in Boney Bear's footsteps part singer-songwriter, it's part experimental, it's part R&B. And I saw him live as well this year. Is at a, a sold-out show in Brooklyn and it was really emotive. All the band members are just like on their game. So yeah, Dijon... I'm really excited to see what he does next. Uh, Jeremy, any that stand out for you? You know, I, I got to be honest, I don't have a ton. I'm, I have a hard time connecting to the idea of pop stardom. That's my own hang up. That's fine. Just being honest, being being real. I have a hard time prognosticating. I will say that it seems to me that whatever Phoebe Bridgers does next will be something that will either jettison her to the top of the billboard charts or will be a completely left turn. And I think the smart money is on top of the billboard charts. Her style of music, her persona, it seems so genuine and such like something that 
millions of people have really glommed onto both as like an idea, like a concept and a style that there is something so spring loaded in her right now that whatever happens next, I think like she could probably become the number one pop star in the country for, for years. She has birthed an entire community of artists. And I think that she's sort of like the mother of this subgenre of indie folk pop. Like, in addition to Taylor Swift, I think she might just sort of leapfrog over her in a way. Okay, so we obviously can't fit all of 2022 into one episode. So we've covered some of the very big artists and the pop stuff that has dominated this year. But next week, we'll get into the indie artists that really kept us going. See you then. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Thanks to Alphonse Pierre and Kat Zhang for sharing their personal favorites of the year. And of course, to Jeremy Larson and Ryan Domble. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. I'm the editor of Pitchfork, Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening.